In the second iteration of Fishing for Problems, I bring you an interview with Amanda Datnow, professor in the Department of Education Studies and associate dean of the Division of Social Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Amanda's research focuses on educational reform and policy, particularly with regard to issues of equity in the professional lives of educators. I was drawn to Amanda's work as I searched through research on data use and equity in the K-12 space, and this serves as the foundation for our conversation. Amanda has done extensive research on how to use data to address issues of inequity in elementary and secondary classrooms throughout the country. She has published numerous books, her most recent being Professional Collaboration with Purpose, Teacher Learning for Equity and Excellence, published in 2019, which she co-authored with Vicki Park. You'll find one of Professor Park's articles in the Leadership Newsletter this month. Amanda and I discussed the importance of broadening the definition of data, the difference between data-informed and data-driven decision-making, the often misunderstood complexity of data use as an organizational and individual practice, practical strategies that school and district leaders and classroom teachers might use to better analyze and action plan with data, and more. Amanda has also done work on teacher agency, although we didn't get a chance to discuss this. The use of data in the K-12 space is a topic I have a lot to say about. I was a frequent user of data as a classroom teacher. I also spent three years working for a data analytics and research organization where I worked directly with hundreds of K-12 organizations from the state to the local level, trying to build capacity around data use. I designed virtual and on-site professional development workshops. I developed a video library focused on data literacy and platform usage. And I created with the help of a colleague and close friend, guided navigation activities intended to build individual and organizational capacity to use data. You can find a blog post on this. I'm working on a larger review on data use in the K-12 space. And I'm also thinking about releasing a few self-created podcasts on data use. One on my experiences using do nows, exit tickets, self-created assessments, and more to inform my teaching practice when I was in the classroom. And a second, exploring the things I learned working with educational leaders to build data literacy. Needless to say, this is a topic I am passionate about. A big thank you to Amanda. She was gracious enough to come on the podcast twice. We had a significant technical issue on my end the first time, so I very much appreciate that she was willing to come back on again. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Without further ado, I bring you Amanda Datnow. Professor Datnow, Amanda, it's great having you on the podcast. I'm looking forward to our conversation today, and I appreciate you coming on again, um, considering the technical difficulties that we had that first time. Um, So can you tell us a bit about yourself um, and how you ended up as a researcher at the um, University of California, San Diego? Thank you, Matt. I'm delighted to be here. I have been at the University of California, San Diego as a professor um, since 2008. And I was working at other universities before that as a faculty member. But what really got me into research was actually initially pursuing a a career in teaching, in K-12 teaching. And I was exposed to some of the research in the field of education and really struck by the inequalities that have been documented in our field. And so I became um, passionate about really understanding those in more depth and had the opportunity to work on research projects, even as an undergraduate, that led me to kind of get a deeper understanding of how daily interactions between educators and also between educators and students help to um, produce some of those inequalities that that we now see as kind of longer term patterns. And so I became really interested in understanding the opportunity structures in schools and the ways in which we might potentially reform schools so that they better meet the needs of all students. 
And your work at uh, UC San Diego uh, is focused a lot on data use in the K-12 space. Um, I know you've done some work on teacher agency as well. Uh, just overall, what do you believe the role of K-12 research should be? Well, I have been studying educational change um, for about, gosh, 25 years or more now. And, um, you know, I think education research can play an incredibly important role in illuminating what some of the um, struggles and successes that's, that schools and systems face when trying to engage in change and really bring a human element to that, particularly when the research is qualitative. But it's, um, it's also become apparent over the years that we need to close the gap between research and practice. So it's not just enough to document what those changes might be or how other schools have managed through different types of um, improvement efforts, but to really um, make a difference, we need to figure out how we can use that research to better inform practice. And so increasingly in my work, I'm spending time working more closely with educators and research practice partnerships to try to um, you know, have teachers and um, administrators involved in, the, in both the work and setting the agenda of what we study, how we study it, um, engaging with us and kind of rolling up their sleeves and looking at the data that we're gathering and using it in more immediate ways to inform practice rather than doing kind of more traditional studies where at the end of you know several years we hope that somebody reads what we wrote about. Yeah instead of uh, sort of on your end driving those questions um, the folks that you're working with uh, practitioners driving some of those questions and you supporting uh, the work that they're trying to do to try to find some answers to those questions is that right? Exactly I mean we really want the work to be oriented around the pressing problems that, that people are grappling with in their settings. Can you also talk a little bit about the role of theory uh, in uh, in research and also the role that you think theory should play uh, as educators look to successfully teach all groups of students? Well, you know, as a researcher, obviously, I think theory does have value. Um, I think that it's incumbent upon us, though, to help make those applications more clear. And so I think, you know, I've noticed from many of my students who are in the EDD program, for example, and are practicing educators, they find theory quite useful in helping them make sense of some of the patterns that they've been seeing and helps them kind of put a new lens on particular problems that they've been um, tackling in their daily work. And so I do think that um, theories can be very illuminating in helping us understand those things. And so even early in my career, as you mentioned, I became interested in teacher agency. I was really interested in how do teachers act as active agents in the reform process. And, you know, um, in some cases, teachers are pushing reform and other face cases, they're sitting on the fence and waiting for it to pass. Um, in other cases, they're actively fighting against reform because we can't assume that all reform is good. Some reforms are ones that we should not be probably implementing. And so as I became to understand those, I um, realized it was important to understand the complex relationship between teacher agency and the broader structure and culture in which they're part, both within the school and system, but also more broadly in society. And so as we do those things, there's a, you know, a large body of work in social theory that helps us understand the relationship between structure and agency and role of cultures and mediating force in that dynamic. And so I think there is a lot of value to understanding theory and helping us make sense of you know, real life problems. Yeah, and understanding why things are happening the way that they're happening uh, in the classroom um, and in just broader K-12 organizations at large. Mm -hmm. So let's get into uh, let's get into data. Uh, I'm going to start with a softball question. What is data, and what do you think counts as data? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because I think one of the big um, pieces of the work that that my colleague Vicky Park and I and some other collaborators um, that we've been fortunate to have over the years have have tried to do 
is really um, reinforce the fact that data needs to be thought of broadly. And so oftentimes in, in K-12 education circles, data are narrowly construed in terms of data that are attached to accountability mechanisms. So it could be state standardized test data, sometimes benchmark assessment data, so on. And so um, what we've tried to do is to think about data as information on student learning. And that could be gathered in the classroom um, formatively. It could be um, evidence of student thinking and how they're tackling a math problem. It could be um, kind of careful observations that teachers make in the course of their work. It could be homework, it could be writing samples, it could be a whole host of different things. So we, we also think it's really important that, that, if, that, that these broad types of data be brought together in creating a portrait of what, you know, um, not enough to rely on any one sort of source of data. We really need to have multiple forms of data. So some schools and districts are gathering um, data on, of course they're gathering data on student attendance and discipline um, records and so so on and those times those types of data can also be illuminating helping us understand student achievement so when we take a more holistic look at a, how a child is learning we we can um, examine all of those things we can also look at course taking patterns at the high school and so on to really build a more full portrait but I think it's it's it, and it's really incumbent on leaders to communicate that broad use of data to educators and their systems because when uh, data are not narrowly construed in terms of accountability, we end up with sort of a compliance orientation up and down the system, which we've seen in our, in our work and in many other studies as well. And that tends to be harmful. And so when I interview teachers and we, we talk to them, we, we, we might say, what do you think of as data? And usually we'll say the same thing I told you, test score data. But then I say, well, what information informs you about student learning plan your instruction? They'll give us a whole long list of things. And so there's, you know, many forms that I didn't mention as well. And so graphic uh, information is a lot. So, you know, I'm a big believer that the data need to be broadly construed. Yep. And um, are you recording? Because I don't have yes. Okay. I don't see it. Oh, yeah. I see it now. Okay. Yeah. So I want to put a pin in the idea of uh, expanding uh, the notion of, of data, um, expanding it into to information as well. Uh, but before doing that, uh, I want to talk a bit about data-driven decision-making versus data-informed decision-making, because these two terms have come up in your research. They come up in other research as well. And both of these phrases have become popular among practitioners and researchers. And they appear similar, but some folks prefer one over the other. So a couple of questions. Uh, is there a distinction between the two? And if there is a distinction, what is it? Uh, does it matter? And is there one of those that you prefer? Um, there is a distinction between the two. And I think, you know, one thing that, that we have learned is that data don't actually drive. Data don't tell you what to do. They can provide information that can inspire improvement, but they they won't tell teachers what to do differently in a classroom. Um, and looking at data alone will not improve teaching and learning. And so data needs to be part of this broader inquiry process that supports teachers in engaging in, you know, let's say at the classroom level, um, a dialogue around, you know, how it might be used and how it could be made sense of. And so, you know, I will share a funny anecdote though, the book that Vicki Park and I wrote um, that was published in 2014 is called Data-Driven Leadership. And within the first chapter, it very clearly says, we don't really mean data-informed leadership. We mean, it's, it's called data-driven leadership. We, and we say, we don't really mean data-driven leadership. We mean data-informed leadership because we don't believe that data drive, as I told you. 
And um, we wanted to call the book Data Informed Leadership, but the publisher said it definitely wouldn't sell with that title. And so people, particularly coming out of the corporate world and so on, are very passionate about this idea of data driven, but it's, you know, people are active sense makers. And, and so what you do with data matters a whole lot. And that's the piece that we see people struggle with because we oftentimes look at data and, and imagine that it's gonna tell us what to do, but really it's important that we engage with those data in really thoughtful and careful ways um, to help think about next steps. Thank you. And we're gonna get into a conversation about the how. Uh, before that, I think there are still a little bit more of the why to talk about and the what as well. Um, and I wanna talk a bit about how uh, data-driven or data-informed decision-making became a more pervasive practice in the K-12 space. And in doing so, I wanna acknowledge that data has always been used by educators. It may have been more informal use, but teachers are always collecting data about their students. You know, for example, Jimmy comes into the classroom in the morning and appears upset. This is uncharacteristic, so you go check in with him. You give a test to students and all of them fail, that's a data point to consider. And you don't need a local, a state, a federal mandate to actually use data, um, but it has become more of an accepted, almost take it for granted strategy for school improvement or accountability. So can you talk a little bit about the history of data informed decision-making? I think likely since uh, the passage of NCLB uh, and, and why or how it's become such a prevalent practice. Well, I think, um, you know, I'm really glad you mentioned that the teachers have been and schools have been looking at data for a really long time. And so um, in some ways, you know, you might say that the use of formative data to from teaching is simply just good teaching practice. Um, but but then the question becomes, how did this get kind of conflated with data driven decision making? And what with NCLB, which really pushed the use of data and, you know, paying attention to patterns by subgroup and so on. Um, also led to school systems in the US to adopt benchmark assessment, um, you know, usually from external assessments, usually from external providers to assess how their students were learning in relation to the state standards. And so in that process, um, once those data came back, you know, systems also develop different, you know, tools and sometimes the benchmark assessments themselves were accompanied by different tools to help teachers think about what do I do now? What patterns do I see? Which students are in the red and the green? You know, who should I be paying attention to? And so a lot of the focus in that point was kind of think about, was thinking about focusing on students on the bubble. So where can I get the most kind of bang for my buck in terms of focusing my instructional efforts and taking notice of kids who need to be just pushed over that level of proficiency. So data use at that time was very tied in with NCLB because the goal was really to improve the outcomes on those state assessments. And so um, in many ways, what we've come to learn is that those practices were problematic and that in fact, that this kind of triage approach of, of using data left many students behind and you know meant that students on different ends of the performance spectrum might not be examined as closely. And so um, there's been a, hopefully a shift away from that, although I do know so many systems that still do focus on identifying, you know, focal students to place their efforts based using data. Now, one thing that, that was positive that maybe came out of that movement was teachers did start to maybe more systematically document or pay attention to data. So sometimes they might say, well, gosh, these benchmark assessments data may not tell me everything I want to know about this kid, but let me think about what I do have that will. And so if I look at this as part of a holistic portrait of student achievement, then it you know gives me a little bit more information. So I think some of the routines that might've gotten developed during that period were potentially helpful as long as they, as, as teachers started to say, well, maybe not these data, because they might, may or may not be useful to me, 
but there are other forms of data we also should be looking at. And so I think some of those routines often got developed in the context of professional learning communities. Um, but again, I think much of the administrative focus has been on taking a look at these external data, which, you know, there are teachers who find the benchmark assessment data really helpful. There's also teachers who find benchmark assessment data not useful. And it also bears mentioning that those data have never been gathered across all, all subjects either. And so it has led, led in some schools to kind of a hyper-focus on literacy and numeracy and, and less focus in, you know, on other subjects where you know, benchmarks weren't being administered. Yeah, and I appreciate you calling out you know, data being used to start a conversation, whether that data is the right data or whether it feels like it's not the right data, but I might be looking for, uh, for other data that might inform some of the instructional decisions I'm making. So let's sit with that for a little bit, um, because I, I wanna ask what might appear to be an unusual question, but it is one that I think warrants close attention because data use feels almost universally considered to be a useful practice if done right. And I think teachers, school district leaders, um, policymakers should reflect on this question before embarking on a data-informed decision-making journey. We're going to discuss the challenges of good data use. You know, we, it requires time, it requires effort, it requires resources. But before that, I want to focus on the why of data use. And one finding from your 2018 paper on Teacher Talk is that the use of data provided a space for conversations about student growth. When I was a teacher, a sixth grade math teacher, I used data obsessively in my classroom. I used daily do-nows and exit tickets to inform my instructional decisions. I developed all of my own assessments. We used map tests. After I left the classroom, I spent three years supporting school districts, service agencies, and state departments as they sought to improve their capacity to use data. So I have what I think is quite a bit of experience in this space. And this claim encapsulates a critical role that I think data can play. Maybe the most important role is it creates a space, an opportunity, an entry point to have critical conversations. So can you respond to that and discuss how your research has informed how you view the role of data use and why you think data-driven decision-making is a useful practice if you think it is a useful practice. And maybe as you do that, you can discuss the metaphor of opening and closing doors for equity that you present in your 2018 paper. Sure, and, um, and it's wonderful that you have that rich experience because I think you've experienced how to use data in different ways and, um, you know, and probably made your teaching much more personalized around student learning than it might have been had you not been doing that. And so some of the teachers that, that I have worked with who have engaged in some of the practices you did really would say, gosh, it would be hard to not go, you know, to go forth in teaching without using all of these, these ways of understanding how my students are learning because it's incredibly informative and helps me really change what I'm doing tomorrow in my classroom. And so, um, so that would be kind of the best picture of what we would hope might happen in a data use, you know, realm. Um, what I think we are also hopeful regarding data is that data can be used to, um, uh, confront assumptions, long-standing assumptions that we might have had about students rather than confirm them. And so, you know, one of the things that we would like people to be doing, if we're going to imagine that we think, we say, yes, data use has a role in school improvement. And I do believe it has a role in school improvement when done well. I think what we want to use data for is to really say, what can these data tell us about how we're providing opportunity to learn for these kids? And so, and, and to also not locate the problems of student achievement in the children, and that we're serving, but rather to look at the broader system in which they're in, in which they're learning. And so, um, you know, you 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 can look at patterns of data and say, wow, you know, these patterns are self-evident given who I have in my classroom. Or you can say, wow, I see some interesting patterns here in the data that really help me realize that those assumptions that 
might have been held, you know, about students or some people might hold about students um, don't apply here. And so what we really want people to actively do is to use data to think more broadly about their students and what they're able to achieve. Now, one of the things we report on and one of the papers you mentioned is that um, the looking at data ha helps teachers understand achievement in much more nuanced ways. So rather than saying, I've just got this low achieving student in my class, they're not globally low, quote unquote, which is a, a term we critique as well, but that rather that they might be struggling in a certain area. So they're struggling to understand, you know, uh, informational text. And so I can work with them on that and that can overall potentially improve their reading comprehension, at least in that domain, for example, rather than just saying, He's a low reader. And so, you know, what that without, you know, kind of more detailed data on students um, learning, it'd be pretty hard to make, to, to kind of provide that level of insight into what was helping a student struggle. But that also allows the student then lots of potential for growth in that area, but also in other areas and, and for us to be able to shine the light on the, 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 the assets the student has. And so we always encourage people to start with the assets and that's very hard sometimes. And so when we have worked with groups of teachers and we, there's oftentimes a, we, we tend to focus on what the student can do well and often, oftentimes don't start with, well, what do they know? What are they able to do? And how do we build on that? And so that's sometimes the data can be a really good starting point for having that conversation too. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, and uh, um, I, uh, I want to continue to move on um, and get into the the how of data use, uh, but before getting into that, a couple more questions around um, still kind of sitting at that high level uh, of, of the what um, you've argued that data is a tool that can be used for school improvement and a core responsibility as a qualitative researcher is to understand how it's being used. Uh, you write in both of your 2018 papers on data use and equity that you approach this topic from a social constructivist framework. Um, and I'm hoping to use this platform, the podcast, the newsletter to infuse more theory into the K-12 world. We talked a little bit about the role that theory can play, um, but can you talk a little bit about what social constructivism is and why it's a useful framework to understand data use and maybe also allude to the role of language as well um, in social constructivism? That would be That would be great. Sure. So, you know, this work really takes as a starting point, the belief that facts are created in the course of interaction between individuals. And so, you know, um, for example, when a student is labeled in a particular way, those labels become expectations. And so one of the things that we are critical of is the ways in which some of the um, labels that were applied to students that came out of the classifications from NCLB, sort of below basic, far below basic, and so on, actually became the way that students were sometimes labeled in schools. Like, oh, my far below basic kids, this is what I see from them, or I can't do this with this group of students, for example. And so, you know, what we try to draw attention to is the ways in which we talk about kids um, become, turn into expectations we have of them. And so it's always been my belief in anything that I've studied that, that much of what occurs in, in education is created through the daily decisions of people. And so that's why looking at some of these labels as a social construction is something that we, you know, actively create. That's not to say we don't live in a broader world in which um, some of those categories are supplied for us. I mean, the policy influence I described there, but also there, we live in a deeply unequal society um, when it, in terms of race and class, for example, and some of those larger um, assumptions around um, 
student achievement along racial and class lines tends to filter into teachers' dialogue about kids. And so, you know, um, in a best case scenario, you know, those conversations around data help to open up doors for students and rather than to close them. But we've also seen situations in which sometimes inadvertently doors are closed to students on the basis of data. So for example, when we erroneously use benchmark assessment data to place students into particular, um, you know, math, regular math or honors math, for example, or accelerated math, um, we are often closing doors for a lot of kids and though, and we're using assessments that aren't intended for that purpose. So on the one hand, we might say, oh, it's great, we've got this assessment from spring, we can figure out how to use this to place students into seventh grade math next year. But in fact, we're probably leaving a large challenge pool behind when we do that. And so we have to be really careful when we use data in making decisions that have long-term consequences for students' lives because even in a single decision like that, a message is given to a child about, well, gee, I must not be good at math. Um, I've always thought of myself as good at math, but some other people have defined me as not good at math. And so it gives you an idea of what, how those social constructions matter. But that's sort of the, the, the bad side of what can happen. But I think it's also important to remember that we can change our, we can be really conscious of the language we use and also open up a whole lot of possibilities um, for students. And um, through that language. And so even the examples of, you know, many math teachers might refer to kids as mathematicians, like, hey, mathematicians, we've got something, you know, important happening today, or, you know, really taking seriously how students are um, thinking and doing, you know, complex problem solving and so on. There's lots of different ways to change those identities, so to speak, through the language we use. But I think we have to be really mindful of that as we use data to categorize, because it's all too easy to, um, to think that by using data, we're making the right decisions. But unless we approach data use with an equity lens, we may be making a lot of you know, decisions that are, you know, have equity, negative equity consequences for kids. You could think about the same data being used in one school setting, uh, having very different conclusions uh, mm -hmm. and very different decisions made based on that data than uh, that same data being used in another in another school setting. Um, and so that's one way that I sort of think about social constructivism um, is, uh, you know, our our contexts matter a lot. Our individual experiences matter. Uh, they, you know, they act as lenses uh, in the ways that we um and that we view uh, and attribute uh, student outcomes. Um, and as you mentioned, they're not without influence from you know, various local, state, federal policies. Um, but um, you know, the way that I interpret something may be very different than the way that, uh, that another uh, teacher might, might interpret it. Um, so uh, let's try to shift a little bit to the how of data use. And I wanna get into you know, along those lines. Um, how school leaders can influence the way that uh, I, as an educator, as a classroom educator, might look at data. But even before that, uh, I want to read a quote from your 2018 paper on opening and closing doors for equity, because I think it highlights the complexity of data use. Um, and I think this is an important place to start. So you juxtapose data use for accountability versus data use for school improvement, using data to challenge assumptions versus using it to confirm assumptions, using data to track students versus using data for flexible grouping, and you highlight that there's an apparent dualism there, yet you write that these sets of decisions, data for accountability versus data versus, uh, for school improvement, tracking versus flexible grouping, confirming versus challenging assumptions, that these dualisms are, and I quote, not necessarily dualisms with dichotomous sets of practices, 
Rather, along each of these dimensions, there are active decision makers, complex processes of data use at play, and a great deal of variation, both within and across context. These decisions are also intertwined and may need to be considered in relationship with one another. Now, I think that anyone wanting to understand the complexities of data use need only to sit with these three sentences. You know, as I referenced earlier, I have, I think, extensive experience using data. Um, and I just wanna sit here because I feel like it highlights some critical complexities um, that are not always recognized. So um, let's start with why no dichotomies? Why can't we assume that data use for accountability is bad and data use for school improvement is good? Um, so why, why is it more complex than simply uh, you know, putting those two on a spectrum and saying one side good, one side not so good? Well, I think first of all, I mean, with respect to um, accountability, accountability policies are an inevitable part of educational life in the US and in many other places. And so it's not as if we want to avoid them or that we want to say those data don't matter. They do, they have real consequences for everybody working in schools and so, um, and for people attending them as well. So I think we, ha we have to think intelligently about those data and, you know, it's, and, and think about how we're going to you know, make improvements along those lines. But I, what I've known for a long time from other people's research is that when a school is internally accountable, they're much more able to be externally accountable. And so, you know, if you're doing some of the practices you've described in the past, you know, from your own prior work, chances are that's also going to yield positive outcomes on the things that we're being externally evaluated on. And so I think we need to understand that linkage between those two. And so it's not as if we say, well, we're not interested in accountability, we do the school improvement. You really should be doing both, but, but you know, you need to be thinking about, um, you know, multiple forms of data to help you get to that endpoint, but not to be overly perseverating on that all the time. Because as I said in the work, you know, that creates a, a compliance mindset all over the system. And so we, you know, it creates a compliance mindset so that inquiry doesn't become a part of the meetings in which teachers are asked to look at data. It's like, okay, what does the principal want us to do? They want us to identify these focal kids. All right, we put these names down, we'll get on with it. What's the next task? It's not this deep inquiry into teaching and dialogue, partly because the whole system is oriented around accountability. And we see this much more in schools that are um, labeled as underperforming or under pressure to improve. And so those conversations are likely to be very different in a school that's you know, historically shown strong outcomes on, on standardized achievements. And so, you know, those, those variables matter a lot, but it's also the case that, you know, you mentioned the issue of tracking and, and flexible grouping. Flexible grouping is, may look very different from classroom to classroom. You know, there may be the case that there's certain teams or departments where grouping is flexible and, and, and there are others where, you know, a team is unwilling or, or, or has policies they're dealing with that, 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 prescribe them to sort students in a certain way. I mean, in many cases, that's what we're imagining. It's not that some nefarious group of people decided to sort students this way. It was, this is what's been decided by some other level of the system that students will be sorted this way. And so what our, we try to point out is, well, what's the role of assessment in that process? What, what's the role of data in that process? Because those other pieces are um, you know, prevalent. So there really are a set of complex decisions on all of these dimensions, but I think you know, one of the things you pointed to, which I wanted to highlight in this process is that is the number of people involved. And so hmm. imagine you have a system leader, you, well, you have state level policies and so on. So people are making decisions, but you've got, let's say a district leader who might communicate how data are used and valued within that system. 
that gets translated in a certain way at the school level with principals who feel different kinds of ways about using data and they set the stage for what that looks like. At the Then there's the, the other um, setting which we have found to be really important which is the teacher team. So whether that's a department level or grade level in the case of elementary, um, those are really important settings for the examination of data and have often been seen as the key place for where this data use sits. And so, and who's in that room really matters. And so Matt, if you're in that room and you've had this positive experience using data in a wide range of ways, I can imagine your colleagues are gonna pick up on, huh, I could, if they, let's say they're new to this process, they're gonna pick up on the various ways in which data could be used to open doors for kids in their classroom, improve their teaching and so on. But if you're working with a, a different composition of people who maybe haven't had that experience, you know, um, have mainly thought about data in terms of accountability, it might be a very different conversation. And so, you know, I think what we've seen in schools is teachers also play a really key leadership role, sometimes instructional coaches, but individual teachers who might have had some opportunity to learn differently about these things. Um, you know, so you mentioned like school to school things might look different, but team to team they look different. And so one of our recent studies, we've studied multiple teams in a particular school and even just, you know, a grade level part, they look quite different, different patterns, different, um, you know, for a whole host of reasons. And a lot of that comes from your positionality as a teacher and what you prioritize and how you think about, you know, student learning. And it's, it's all very interconnected with teaching. And, um, you know, we don't necessarily pre prepare teachers very well for this in teacher training, for example, of the various forms of data that they're going to be asked to be used in their work. Well, so let's talk about leadership then. So what role do K-12 leaders play in data use practices and specifically around promoting issues of equity? And maybe in discussing this, you can also define how you uh, view equity um, because I think this word is often, it's thrown around a lot, but it's often uh, misunderstood. So um, one of the definitions that we cite in our work is my colleague, Michael Pollack's definition, which is equity is, you know, essentially expanding opportunities for, you know, all students and all groups of students. So individual students and all groups of students. And so, um, you know, really what we're talking about is, is look at the ways in which, you know, our schools um, contribute to or hinder student learning, you know, along a variety of dimensions. And so, you know, as I mentioned before, we want to, for example, identify and ameliorate gaps and opportunities to learn rather than labeling students. We want to, um, consider what, what practices inhibit student learning rather than point to families or students as the source of their underachievement. And so it's those kinds of things. It's a really a much more kind of strength rather than deficit-based approach. And so one of the things that, that does come up sometimes in data conversations is those different kinds of language that we see. So it's really important for the principal to set the tone for those kinds of conversations, but it is not easy. And so, you know, there are deep conversations around, um, many ways in which you know society is currently divided that that um you know around inequality around race and class and so on and language and um that do come up in these conversations and not every leader feels comfortable diving into those conversations and so might let key learning opportunities among staff go um but it's you know i think right now you know more than ever it's incumbent upon us to kind of make space for those harder conversations and sometimes that means providing extra time and, and really providing time for teachers to engage in inquiry around the data rather than simply looking for it. So the piece about data use that often gets lost is the, you know, really examining like the what's next now, you know, so we see these patterns, how do we make sense of them? And then what do we do about them? And so 
there's a lot of data kind of generated, but not a whole, not as much, you know, active sense-making around that. But I think the leader plays a key role in shaping that conversation and shifting the dialogue. So in our work, we can show specific examples of leaders who have said, well, let's think about this another way. You know, and someone says, well, you know, yes, you know, in this class, um, you know, we see these patterns and a, and a principal could say, well, let's look at this another way. You know, have you considered, you know, this other um, way of examining this data, you know, for example. What role do leaders play? You've talked about, uh, you know, expanding or broadening the definition of data. What role can they play in, in that piece? Um, so that, you know, we're not just looking at one specific piece of data such as benchmark assessment data. Um, I think they, well, they can model for one. I think that that is a really useful tool, but I have seen some principals provide very flexible prompts to teachers in terms of thinking mm -hmm. about data. So to, you know, let's say a principal can provide a really, you know, a very open-ended kind of prompt, like, you know, what what is your team's goal for improving, you know, math learning this year and how will you know? You know what I mean? And, and what, what methods might you use to see if you've met that goal? So let's say everybody's going to try to work on um, getting more student dialogue about math in the classroom. How would they know that, for example? Um, or let's say they're trying to improve students, you know, understanding a particular area. How will they know that? And so what, what measures or, you know, forms of information could they point to? But to kind of leave things a bit more open-ended, I think where we've seen um, some struggles around accountability is when the, the mandates from leadership become too prescribed. And I think there is a point in the early stages and teachers are starting to examine data that may be introducing them to a protocol and a way of kind of a cycle of inquiry that, that they could engage in is useful. But at some point, the guardrails need to be lowered so the teachers can have be free to have a conversation that really gets in, digs into instruction. And so oftentimes, if, the, if those protocols for examining data are too prescribed, teachers don't have an opportunity to really, you know, um, kind of get into, well, this is what I tried in my class. I want to share about this because that's really where we're going to see improved instruction. We can look at all the data we want, but we're, until we see something different happen in the classroom, we can't really imagine that things are going to shift. And so where's the vehicle for that? Well, it's possibly in a meeting among teachers, but if the, if the if principles are too prescribed in terms of what happens there, then it makes it really difficult for, for teachers to share. And so, you know, in our other work, we, we write a lot about kind of what creates a productive and joyful learning experience for teachers in those settings. And it tends not to be this sort of lockstep approach of moving through a set of, you know, questions because then the focus becomes kind of filling out the form that's given to them rather than actually doing the deeper work. Yeah, and I think that the focus on uh, where leaders can play a role in, in expanding the number of data points used. So one thing that we found in my uh, in a previous job um, when I supported data use um, was we would look at data points within the sort of traditional four Cs, creativity, collaboration, um, critical thinking, and oh my gosh, this is embarrassing. Um, uh, creativity, collaboration, critical thinking. And what's the fourth one that I'm missing? It's a Rick Perry moment here. Um, anyways, uh, we would we would start with a data point in uh, let's say collaboration, and uh, I'd be in a conversation with the tech director, curriculum director, and the data point might be you know teachers ask students to collaborate online with their classmates, so peer to peer interaction online. 
And they're looking at this one data point and they say to themselves, okay, you know, 20% of our teachers are actually doing this in their classrooms. What do I, what do I do with this data point? And one of the things that we encouraged is for them to build what we ended up calling data constellations. So really trying to understand the, uh, the, the causes of those data points as much as, as much as possible. So thinking about, you know, teacher access to technology or thinking about teacher skills or thinking about the environment that teachers are operating in. And once we built out those data constellations, we found that school and district leaders were able to make much more sense of the data that they were seeing and also able to action plan around it a lot more. And I think you run into these problems around, you know, standardized test data is it's one data point and it's for a lot of teachers, the only data point that they end up looking at. And they're wondering, what do I, what do I actually do with this? Um, because it ends up defining the, the students and, you know, your students get labeled in a certain way, but also as a teacher, you get labeled in a certain way. And building out these data constellations, bringing in other data points, I think really help build a broader picture of what is actually going on within that specific situation. And so leaders who are trying to support uh, data use among their teachers potentially can bring in more of those data points to really build, I think, a deeper understanding of what is actually going on with their students. And I think it it also releases teachers from some of the responsibility too of feeling like they need to, you know, get this one data point up when they have other uh, pieces of information they can point to that show that they are, you know, maybe being more successful than one data point might suggest. Absolutely. And I think that's that's incredibly helpful. I mean, as you know, it sort of fits with the notion of portraits that I mentioned earlier, but I, but you also introduced another point that I wanted to underscore, which is the important role of teacher professional judgment in this process, because I think, you know, people have an assumption that somehow data were, were meant to supersede teacher professional judgment. And one of the things that we really try to, you know, that reinforce in our work is that data are meant to support, not supplant teacher judgment. So in fact, teachers deep knowledge of professional wisdom that they gain through their work is one of the many important ingredients in this process. And so, you know, it's it's that deep work that teachers do that really makes, you know, this a difference here. But I also wanted to add that I think, you know, some of the data use that I think you were talking about might happen at a level beyond the kind of the classroom teacher dialing with other classroom teachers. And, and we see that a little bit less commonly here in the US, but in some other countries they're doing more of that. And so I'll point, for example, to Kim Schildkamp and her colleagues work in the Netherlands. And so there, there's the notion of a data team, but it's not a, a grade level team or a course alike group. It's a group of people at the school, which involves a group teachers, but also involves other people in other roles and the principal and so on. And in those cases, they might over a year, for example, with the assistance of university folks and consultants as um, facilitators, you know, tackle a problem in their school and look at multiple forms of data to try to understand it. And I think that's a really useful model that, as well to kind of get a, you know, better sense of kind of the, the range of, of, you know, influences and in trying to understand what might be happening in a particular place. And we do that a little bit less here, but it is still also a really important practice that, that would be useful for improvement more broadly in the school. The, pro yeah, the process of data triangulation, I think it, it highlights that there are multiple leverage points that you can pull um, and, uh, and uh, yeah, I do agree that um, if, if data use is not used in that way, uh, you know, the practice itself becomes much more one dimensional. Um, exactly. And I think, 
it, it has educators, educators know at heart that those state test scores do not define them, that they do not accurately represent what's going on within their classrooms. And yet, uh, in a context where that's all that's focused on, you almost start to believe it. Um, and uh, and that, you know, as you've experienced becomes a highly problematic practice. Um, and, uh, and it leads to labeling them students in negative ways. It leads to, uh, you know, focusing on deficits rather than assets. And so uh, it seems that leaders can play a significant role in really opening those doors and expanding the conversation. Um, and it's something that, again, I think everybody naturally understands, but for some reason struggle to, uh, to implement in practice. Absolutely. And I think, you know, understanding all these things is, is, has never been important, more important than today, for example, as teachers are struggling to understand mm-hmm. learning loss or, you know, where their students stand after having spent a lot of time at home and in remote learning spaces, and sometimes, you know, in many cases, still continuing with that. And so, you know, one of the things that we have to do is really think critically about the data we're looking at and think about what are the many reasons why these patterns might appear when you, as you said, when a teacher gives an assessment, for example, um, many of them have nothing to do with the, what the students really know, you know, for example, and is, you know, and that I think it's really important that we think very carefully about the data that we're using now, because I know a lot of um, systems brought kids back to school and we're very eager to administer all manner of assessments to try to figure out where kids are at. And, um, the formats in which those were given, the the range of different learning experiences that students have had in this period, their accessibility. I mean, there's just a, a million different reasons why um, that might recall some of those results into question. So I think that that kind of more holistic portrait becomes imp- more important now than ever. Absolutely, I and mean, just asking my kids how they're doing in general, like yeah. the social emotional stuff is is so important, and the assessment stuff. Well. I get it, and uh, you know there there are you know reasonable concerns about learning loss, um, but uh, at the same time, uh, it's a traumatic experience that a lot of students are going through, and um, yeah, we need to focus on on that piece too. And that might be you know go, going back to uh, what we talked about earlier, like that's informal data that you can collect as teachers. I think there's formal data around social emotional surveys um, that you can uh, that you can provide to students as well. Uh, but uh, that needs to be you know a focus right now, and maybe uh, you know that'll continue to be a focus for edu- for school systems that are implementing um, you know an increased focus on social emotional data. Uh, maybe they'll continue to do that once we. Uh, move beyond um, current status quo into some return to normalcy at some point, whenever that might be. I think that'll be really important because the socio-emotional consequences of the pandemic are going to outlast, you know, this, this small period, obviously. Yeah, so. yeah, no doubt. Um, so with uh, the remaining time we have left, I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, we have talked a little bit about teachers, but uh, I want to um, hone in on a 2018 paper that you co-authored that's focused on the ways that teachers talk about data. Um, this is a critical locus of data use. And as you point out, it's relatively understudied. Um, you've written about it. There is a 2015 paper by Bertrand and Marsh um, around teacher attribution, uh, a 2019 paper by Margaret Evans on a similar topic. And all these papers highlight the importance of how teachers interact with data, how they talk about data, how their students, how they talk about their students based on observed data. So why why study teacher talk and what have you found in your research um, around the ways that um, teachers talk about uh, data? 
Well, I mean, I think it's, well, first of all, one of the things I think we found is that there are ways about talking about data that seem to be somewhat ubiquitous within or across schools. And so um, some of the terms that, that are used now to describe students or to describe um, their performance levels are common in the current age, in part due to accountability policies, as I mentioned a little bit earlier. But I think the, um, the other thing is that I think some terms are thrown around sometimes without people really thinking about them very carefully. And so I, I think we, we have to realize that sometimes what teachers say they do and how they describe their practice may or may not, may or may not map on to the ways in which they talk at times, um, in part because of these kind of like discourse styles become kind of common in a school. And so, um, you know, I would be wary to kind of place um, any negative, cast a negative light on how people talk about um, kids, for example, without really understanding the broader scope of their practice, in part because of the ways in which these patterns have become kind of deeply ingrained in, in us, in part by imposed upon us by the policy lexicons that we've been given about how to categorize kids. And so it's possible that you can observe a teacher in her practice looks nothing like categorizing students into different ways that might, you know, predetermine their patterns as quote, far below basic over the long term. Um, but in fact, those, that the language becomes very much a part of the, the dialogue that teachers are engaged in. And so, you know, sometimes when I, we've shared this work with teachers, it does make them more conscious of their speech, like, oh my gosh, you know, so, you know, one of the things that I mentioned earlier is that particularly in the earlier years with NCLB, there was this you know, perseverance of looking at students on the quote on the bubble, uh, on the cusp of kind of proficiency. And so, you know, I've heard teachers talk about kids that they call my bubble babies, for example, like they, there was a group of students that they, and then when you kind of bring that language to their attention, they say, oh my gosh, you know, I realize how problematic that might sound. But again, it just sort of becomes part of the, the dialogue that happens in a particular site or in a system or in a country, for example. And so I think it's, um, you know, we don't oftentimes, not to say that one needs to be a language arbiter or what, what are the possible ways we might talk, but, but just to remind people that when we categorize students certain ways that does tend to lead to our expectations of them. And so um, we have to be really careful about those, those things. And sometimes the labels are, you know, people to say my SPED kids, my special ed kids, my, you know, English learners. And so there's these global categorizations that, that tend to be underneath those words kind of under, come a whole set of assumptions that, that people may, may or may not attribute to those students. But I think we need to be careful when we use those groupings because they may not apply you know, uniformly to that group and lead the people you're in conversation with to have a set of assumptions about them as well. Is that I feel like, what you're answering, asking about? Yeah, I, I think we could talk a little bit more about it. I feel like a bubble baby uh, using today's content, it's like a swing state almost mm -hmm. you know, for teachers who are focused on uh, on improving their test scores and if they have benchmarks that they need to meet you know there are maybe they need like seven students who are mm -hmm, below right. basic to get above uh, above that uh, above that label uh, and so they end up focusing on them uh, sometimes to the detriment of other students within uh, within their classrooms and i think you alluded to something that you know, labels, they almost act in dehumanizing ways and they begin to um, essentialize uh, certain groups uh, without acknowledging that sometimes those labels that we describe to students do not apply to all or any other students within those groups. 
That's right. And I mean, I think those, those that, you know, particularly that grouping of paying attention to students on the bubble, as we would say, you know, that shifted a little bit in recent years, but I, I mean, I was in school last, last year where they were focusing on, you know, focal students, so to speak. But I think that, um, that it's, it's, I can't actually think of an example where a teacher themselves came up with the idea to do that. It's usually something that flows from a higher level of administration when someone says, hey, our best way to address this, you know, need to, you know, raise test scores would be to focus on this group because this is where we're going to see some impact. And so it's never that teachers came up with this necessarily as a method. And of course, teachers are attending to all of their students' needs, I'm sure. And so, um, but what we've seen as a more productive approach is actually, if you're going to examine data, examine data on all of your students. And um, so we, you know, one of the schools we studied did this, you know, process where multiple times a year they sat down as a, as a team of teachers, also with a team, maybe, you know, that, that had just taught this group of kids in elementary school or the one that was going to see them next to and the principal and, and intervention teachers and so on to talk about each and every student in a holistic way with a whole load of data points. But also it, most of the time that the conversation did not, you know, focus strictly on the numbers on the page, very rarely did. In fact, they were just having a holistic conversation. Well, this is how Matt's doing. This is what I see happening in class. You know, here's how I think we can help him and so on. And, and those things went beyond academics. It was oftentimes like, you know, taking into account his socio-emotional needs as well. And so, you know, that tends to be, the, as you mentioned earlier, then the data become a starting point for a conversation about meeting the child's needs rather than, you know, the, the end point. Yeah, and I think it goes, uh, it goes back to expectations around data use and what role leaders can play in that. You know, one of the questions that I that I had was how do how accountability policies influence teacher talk? And I think we have uh, we have alluded to that things like bubble babies because that likely isn't something that a teacher would come up with on their own without um, you know without the inclusion of a standardized test. And so, you know, as a leader, you have to ask yourself whether you want to use terms like that. And if you hear terms like that, you're going to, you know, shut it off and say, this isn't how we talk about, uh, about our students in, in our learning environment. I think the hard thing is when those mandates come from, let's say the district level and the district says, you know, um, this, ask your teachers to do this, you know, I mean, I bet mm -hmm. we also have seen some extremely, you know, and I understand why this is done. This is a rational response to a system, right? It's not that these are not well-meaning people. They are well-meaning people and they're figuring out how do we get this, you know, this job done essentially, um, and job meaning, you know, raise raise test scores so that somebody externally can um, reclassify us as a school. But I've also seen um, examples of districts that are doing a phenomenal job and really setting the stage for data use differently. And so, for example, one district that we've been working with um, locally here, you know, has has really taken up this idea of data use for equity and has been interested in making sure that when every school leader even looks at standardized test data, that they're looked at through that frame and to give them a set of prompts and questions they might be asking about with their staff to, to do that. But it's, it's, it, it's takes on a kind of a conscious, even just saying, look at your data with an equity frame is a completely different, just that one sentence alone can change the data conversation, um, which is what we've been trying to do. Um, then just look at your data, examine your data, but look at it with an equity frame adds a very different um, lens on, on the process. What other, what other formalized structures have they put in place to support using data for equity um, for folks interested in, you know, in doing similar, similar work? Well, at the district level, I mean, for example, um, in this particular case, you know, I visited with the superintendent and the, the, the lead of 
manages data systems in the district. We visited every principal one-on-one -on -one to kind of go over what, you know, the, both the, the data and how we might examine them, but also to get their take on that and to help them think about what would be the next steps of their staff and in using data with an equity frame and how would that fit. And so it very much was a, each school had, although this overarching frame was present, each school had an opportunity to um, kind of craft and set where their goals are because they really varied. So it wasn't that this one size fits all, everybody go look at your focal students. It was very much in our school, we're struggling with this. And so let's put our focus there and be really examining or let's start a group that might be looking at this. And there were some schools that we visited that said, gosh, you know, um, our teams really need a good example of like, what does it look like to have a thoughtful conversation around data? How can you help us think about what that would be, you know? And so, you know, in some cases they really needed assistance um, thinking about how to engage students in formative assessment. And so they had resources, the district to have someone, you know, be able to visit sites and, um, you know, support students with, or support teachers in learning how to use formative assessment. And so it's, it's um, and differentiate instruction. So in some cases it's that, it's like, I see the patterns, my teachers understand them, but we don't know what to do next. How do we differentiate? And so really much more customized based on what um, is needed at each site rather than sort of a one size fits all strategy across schools. Yeah, and I appreciate the call out on the multiple levels of engagement with data use, the teacher level, the teacher team level, the school level, the district level, the state level. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, you have sort of your top-down approaches and you have your bottom-up mm -hmm. approaches as well. And I think um, each of those groups could influence each other in a, in a dynamic way um, to, you know, ultimately and ideally use data um, to address uh, issues of inequity that, that we're seeing. Um, so uh, we are uh, about up on time. Anything uh, else that you would like to uh, acknowledge around data use? Any parts of our conversation you feel like we missed? Um, well, thank you for asking such a thoughtful set of questions. I think we've covered a lot of things. I would just say that, um, you know, to reiterate that I have incredibly deep respect for people in schools and systems that are grappling with a set of sometimes contradictory demands from the broader policy systems in which they're, that we're all working. And, um, you know, I think we're still at the stage of uncovering really productive and interesting ways to use data to, in fact, open doors for kids rather than to close them. And, um, I encourage people to share the ways in which they're doing this work because what we're really learning is that that exciting work is often really organic and happens at the, you know, at the level of the classroom teacher or principal or, you know, system leader that's really, you know, working creative ways to do the best for their kids. And do you have, quickly, do you have any examples of how folks have done that sort of at the teacher level, the teacher team level, how they shared some of that work with their broader uh, school communities? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, um, you know, as I mentioned, teams vary quite a lot, even from, you know, classroom to grade to grade, room to room and so on. And I think, um, you know, you, you've got some teachers who have some tech savvy skills and really want to dive into data and examine it across in ways that haven't been shared with them. Like, what if we divide students up, you know, according to gender, or, you know, what kind of patterns might we see? What if we, we have other teachers who work very organically and have you know, a large notebook where they've got sticky notes that tell them kind of where students are at in different areas and they move those around as they need to flexibly group them. I mean, there's just a whole host of different kind of creative things that people have done at the local level that I think providing um, images to teachers can be really useful. And so, you know, for example, one of the things that I share when I give presentations is a, a tool that um, I saw a teacher develop where she had a um, had students working in groups on a complex, you know, task, and she walked around and made notes to herself about how the student was solving this problem that she, you know, posed for them, 
what a future teaching point might be for the class and what a future teaching point might be for that, that small group. And so as she walked around, she was very strategic in making note of these things. So rather than just looking around, how is this group doing? Oh yeah, they're getting along fine, whatever. But really to say, hmm, I think they're struggling with you know um, place value, for example. And this other group might have a different, you know, kind of issue, but there were some patterns then she could note that maybe everybody in the class needs to know, but maybe it's just a small group of three needs to know. And so that gives you an example of kind of the kind of creative ways that teachers have, you know, really been approaching thinking deeply about, you know, how to use data that, that's happening all around them as kids are learning in their classrooms, you know, to inform their instruction. Yeah, that and you alluded- makes work easier. It definitely makes teaching more time consuming. I'm sure you can attest to that. But it's uh, but most teachers who engage in this really careful work, and many of them, as you said, just do it routinely as part of their practice. And I think we need to really highlight that as well. Um, is you know have so much to to teach each other. Yeah, I mean it, cer- it certainly does make it much more time consuming. And one of the things you alluded to earlier, um, you didn't name it explicitly, but the knowing doing gap is. Uh, you know, saying that I'm doing something, but actually uh, uh, recording yourself in a lesson or having somebody observe you, you realize that you weren't actually doing that thing. And I think last comment, when it comes to data use, one of the reasons why I love to do nows or exit tickets, like I think at times they can be problematic and they were also overwhelming um, because they might take me an hour or two to to grade, um, to look through all of that data. But if I have students for an hour and 10 minutes, it's unlikely, just personally, my memory isn't great and I'm not gonna remember a whole lot of what happened, um, but at least those specific data points provide um, some evidence of what, what went on during the class. Um, and also, as you alluded to, a teacher going around and just taking notes, having some props um, is a way for them to document things in the moment so that they don't need to try to remember it, um, you know, once their once their kiddos leave the classroom and another group of students come in, because educators' days are so busy that a lot of the time, all that stuff just kind of blends into into one another. Absolutely, I think we've really seen a lot of teachers use exit tickets really effectively, and yeah. and also those seem feel much more low stakes to students. I mean, I think we have to yeah. be mindful that whatever we want to call them, you know, quizzes, tests, quests, you know, all the various things that teachers might call assessments, they're still experienced in a stressful way to students in classrooms. And, you know, I, since I've raised children, I know how that feels from the student end and remember it myself. And so we need to be really mindful that these much more lower stakes ways can really give us a lot of information and help us improve student learning without being seen as, you know, um, highly evaluative on the student end. Yeah, I mean, everything can and probably should be just a formative assessment. Right, that's right. Well, I appreciate your time um, and uh, best of luck in um, the work. I appreciate uh, your research and uh, it's definitely framed a lot of my thinking in this space and uh, hope that we can stay in touch and continue to chat about this. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. I so appreciated your thoughtful questions. So best of luck with your work too. Thanks a lot.